Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Richard C. Torlay. Howdy, howdy. Subrat Mishra. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm just going to do a quick shout out. Got a new thing going. Podcastbootcamp.io. Go check it out. We have a special guest this week, and that's Philip. Philip, do you want to tell us who you are and why you're famous? Hey, guys. So I'm Philip, and I'm from Stuttgart in Germany. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a software engineer since yeah, three years, since 2018. And yeah, I'm really passionate about front-end technologies like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Angular, and yeah, much more things like that. And yeah, I'm really excited to be in your podcast today. Awesome. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, we're happy to have you. You wrote an article that we found on the internet. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it talked about having uh, central error handling in Angular. Yeah. And I, I love the subtitle. It's learn how to automatically, I should I should pull out my announcer voice, learn how to automatically catch all errors in a web application written in Angular and process them accordingly. Do you want to just uh, give us the rundown real quick on kind of the 10,000 foot view, what it what it's generally about, and then we can dive in and talk about how you've put this together and, and what the advantages and disadvantages are? Yeah, sure. So it was uh, when I worked at a project for my company yeah, where we created a new Angular application from scratch. And most of the times you yeah, have some yeah, HTTP requests to some backends and you have some kind of uh, things which are running in your application which might cause some errors. And then I yeah, just also did some research about how yeah could be there a solution to handle errors at a central point so that you are not so that it's not necessary to handle each error at a separate place and this is when i had the idea to yeah use angular interceptors or central components to display the error messages in a consistent way for the user so and yeah, a big advantage of this is that when somehow an error occurs in your application, it's, it makes sure that all errors are catched by this error handling concept. And so you as a developer do not need to think about handling each error in the application. So you just write your features and the central error handling is doing the rest for you. That was the initial idea of that. So that makes is, it sense. The, is it the HTTP error or any error like... <laughs> Like I got some undefined or something. So it's the latter one. So you get all errors that are thrown in your front-end application. And yeah, and this also includes the HTTP errors. Yeah, yeah. I want something that says, quit screwing up my app. <laughs> the user, right? What do you yeah. do? Some, so, yeah, so sometimes you, you're not sure when an error could occur. So mm. maybe you are including a third-party library and you do not know the code so good or you have something like micro frontends and 
you have a lot of, yeah, lots of mm -hmm. small parts that you cannot control all the time. And then sometimes an error occurs somewhere where you didn't expect it. And then you, yeah, you're sure that your global error handler class will catch this error and then will show a consistent error message dialog to the user. Mm -hmm. But I just want to clarify real quick. So we're talking about the user-focused experience, not the developer-focused experience. Yes. So right now it's the, the yeah, mainly the, the user-focused experience. So if you have an application which is meant to be or to, to show consistent error messages to the user and to make sure that it's 100% of your error cases, uh, this error message will be shown, then this is a, a good concept yeah, to, to show a consistent error message as, for example, as a dialogue, which will be shown or an alert, something like that. Gotcha. This uh, this is a very actually a very uh, interesting topic for me as well, and I like the way you approached it in your article. And I guess you know at this early stage in the conversation, maybe you can just give us like a bird's eye view of how you would um, approach this. Uh, I'm talking from an application architecture perspective, as well as the file structure. How would you go about start uh, thinking about this concept and how would you put it together in, in your Angular application? Yeah, sure. So in your Angular application, you usually have some structures with modules. Yeah? You have multiple modules which are containing multiple components and the components are responsible for the user interface. And yeah, for each module, you can yeah, define multiple services and your logic. And next to these modules, to these feature modules that represent some kind of features of your application, you have some shared module or yeah. one, one shared module and one core module. Usually the shared module is a module that contains some, yeah, repeatable components or pipes or services, something like that. And your core module is meant to be there to initialize yeah, basic or main parts of your application. And as a basic part of your application, I see the global error handling. So in this core module, which, yeah, as I said, which will be next to your feature modules, you can initialize, for example, this HTTP error interceptor or an error handler class that intercepts all, all of your errors in your application. And for example, error handler class could inject an error handler service and the service could handle the yeah, whole interaction with yeah, what your application will be or is, is doing with, with the error. So just showing some error dialog or logging it to the console or sending back some logs to the server and something like this. Mm, yeah, I think yeah, you mentioned something pretty interesting. I mean, when you mention uh, initialization, immediately taken aback and I'm thinking about the the different uh, lifecycle hooks uh, for Angular. Um, mm -hmm. So when you talk about initialization, what would be the best place or best time to do that in, in the lifecycle hooks? Is it, are we talking about the ng on a net for the app component or are we talking about the app initializer? So just before the app actually uh, boots up? Yes, I think. So basically you have to check that this core module will be included into the app module. So the app module is your root module of the whole application and the core module will be imported into the app module. And to make sure that the lifecycle is also included or yeah, respected with this error handling, I also showed in my article 
that you have to yeah, make sure that you are waiting for the zone to be defined or to be initialized. And then, for example, the error message will be shown in a dialog if it occurs. Uh, for example, during the on init methods or after view init lifecycle hooks, it's also necessary to yeah show the error messages properly. Yeah, because I'm thinking of more of a scenario where you know, like you want to do some some initialization logic, the way depending on exactly what what you're doing, and your use case, you might want to do it in an app initializer, which is what happened, which is which gets triggered shortly before the app um, gets bootstrapped. So I'm just wondering, would if an error occurred within that during that uh, phase, would do you think the way that you've structured it or the way you've explained it in, in your article, do you think that would be handled in that? scenario as well I'm, I'm not sure so I, I think it is handled right now like this it wasn't initially my idea but I yeah, wrote the article uh, I think a year ago and some mm. weeks or months later some a guy created a pull request at my example repository and told me that it will be necessary to inject the ng zone into my global error handler to yeah open an error dialog with the in within the callback of the ng zone and the zone yeah when when it runs it will probably open the error dialog if also if the application is initializing mm. yeah usually what i'm uh, like what i'm thinking is what i think richard asked maybe i'm just uh, guessing it that normally your mods uh, will inject your component and usually you will get uh, errors from your component like accessing a service or or getting the data to back to the component and as you are handling the error inside a service and that's extending error handle so i think uh, it should catch all the at least temporary related error or the data related error because mm-hmm. they lo- they will load after the service uh, is loaded but it is, so do you but have a good way make... to test this? I'm curious. To test errors when they are thrown while initializing the app? Yeah, or and, and the solution that you've kind of pulled together with this in general. Yeah, so you can in general test the solution as I showed in my example application. So, for example, you could uh, just throw some errors in your application with, with the typical throw error or throw new error syntax of uh, TypeScript or JavaScript and then you can check if the error is catched by your global error handler. Or you could also try to send requests to the backend or to some to some mocked backend, which will return some yeah malicious error co- code or status code like 404 or something or, four, or 501. So these typical error codes from the backend. And you can, yeah, check if your error handler is working and yeah for for these cases the error handler should should catch the errors mm. yeah there, there was another thing that i also picked up uh, from the article uh, which is well written by the way so <laughs> congrats on that i should have mentioned that earlier on but you mentioned that in angular uh, vision 10 it was not possible using instance of operator within the global error handler to distinguish if it is an HTTP error or not. Is this still a limitation in the latest Angular version? I'm not not, not quite sure because I haven't tried it until then, if it's working. But I mm. think yeah, the problem is inside of the the um, error handler class. So yeah, 
So the yeah, the instance of operator was was an issue to check if the error is an HTTP error or not. So yeah, this somehow was was a problem, which is why I used the error interceptor or this HTTP interceptor to handle specifically the HTTP errors. But I think yeah, right now we are also working on an Angular application where we catch these error errors within also with within the error handler class. And so I think it's not not necessary anymore that you mm. have to put this code into the separate HTTP interceptor. Yeah. Uh, maybe for our listeners, maybe it will be beneficial just to explain what was the issue with that instance of, and then also how you were able to, to work around that. Yeah, so the issue was that um, the global, uh, just let's just check me the name. So the global error handler class handles all errors which are thrown in your application. So, and somehow you need to separate errors which are coming from your backend and some errors which are thrown by your front-end application. Like, for example, if, if you the user clicks the wrong button at the wrong time with a wrong input message and the front-end cannot pass it somehow, or it, he types in a wrong character and then somehow it, it crashes the front-end without any backend, inter, without any back, backend action, then you have some local front-end errors. And you want to separate them between the HTTP errors. The other kind of errors is when you send requests to the backend and the backend response is 400 or 500 status code, for example. And somehow you want to separate these error messages because from the backend, it can be that the backend will yeah, return some yeah, semantic information inside the error messages, which comes back from the backend. So for example, database is not available from the backend or the user already exists or the username is not, not valid, something like that. So, so for example, for validation use cases and yeah, and the other error messages, which are only in the front end, they are sometimes more critical. Like, yeah, this, it could also be that it's, it's just a bug or so that the, the developers forgot something to implement and the user will find it out. So it's, it's the worst case, but it's, mm -hmm. it's sometimes. And yeah, when you handle these errors, yeah, you just want to show some yeah, default error messages. So like, oops, just something went wrong, just to indicate the user that he yeah, indicated a bug, which was not initially planned that the user will reach it. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is, this is, um, the, yeah, the reason why I separated these two types of errors. So one error coming from the backend and one raising directly at the frontend and yeah, your question was why we had a problem with this instance of mm. um, the thing is that you have somehow to, yeah, the, the global error handler class does not directly know what kind of error was, was thrown. So it just checks, okay, there's, there's an error and somehow you have to check which, uh, which error it is. And therefore, yeah, I checked if you could verify it with this instance of operator. If this error object instance of HTTP, I don't know the class name, I think HTTP response or so. And yeah, at the time I wrote this article, it was probably working to check if it's an HTTP error or if it's a local error. And this is why I excluded the detection of HTTP errors into the HTTP interceptor class. 
Yeah, because there you you are able to observe every uh, pre-flight request, right? So um, and response. Uh, exactly. In the so, yeah. yeah, at the interceptor you can check yeah the outgoing requests and the incoming responses from the backend, and there you can yeah just simply check also the, the status code and the response messages if it's an error or not, and then you could show some proper error messages to the user. Yeah, that's right. Um, sorry, guys, it sounds like I'm clogging the, <laughs> the questioning here. It's it's something that I've I've, I've dealt with uh, a lot in the past, so I've, I'm very, very curious. Um, good questions. A, yeah, just one as a follow-up with regards to, to these error messages. I don't know, you mentioned a use case which basically brought about this, this article. The... So I'm thinking about the, the error messages themselves, right? I know the backend guys will probably hate me for this, but <laughs> I don't know what's up with them. They're all like this. They always send some cryptic messages to the front end. <laughs> yeah, I also hey, I resent that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. So like, and I think one of the solutions was to, yeah, to do some sort of a mapping um, so that when you get the scripted message, you just give it, turn it into some friendly message that you can yes. dis- display in the in the UI. Um, how you're going to transpile the error messages? <laughs> is that what you're saying into something that the user can understand? Yeah, exactly. So sometimes the language of the backend developers is not the same language as the yeah the, well, the frontend developers speak or also the, the users uh, see or want to want to see. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that that actually speaks to the point that I was trying to make initially, right? Was, is this developer experience or user experience? Because we've run into that, right? We work pretty closely with the business team. And yeah, the stuff we put in the logs, right? So we go to DevOps and we say, we need this log so we can see what happened. (laughs) That's the cryptic type of message that Richard's talking about. But the message that they get is basically an explanation of, hey, here's what happened and here's what you need to tell us so we can fix it. Yeah. But I think it's from from both sides. So, so at the one hand, you can show the user proper error messages, but on the other hand, you can also improve your log messages that you log to the developer console in your browser, or you could also write an adapter service that sends log messages back to the backend. So mm-hmm. each time or every time an error occurs, you could also send some error messages back to the backend for metrics or to log them in a log file at the backend and so on. Yeah. So I think so it's Richard, not only from the user okay. perspective, but also from the developer's perspective. Yep, absolutely. I'm re- I'm curious, Richard, what does your message transpiler look like? I mean, is it just a service that just has a key in a It was <laughs> very, very primitive. Yeah. <laughs> very, very primitive. But like it, it was it got to a point where we're like, okay, even the front end guys didn't even understand what the hell these guys are trying to say. It's like, okay, guys, we need to find some middle ground so that we can all speak the same same mm. language or at least convey the sa- uh, same language uh, or same thing to to the end users but i'll tell you one story about the one friendly error message that i i saw it was more not really quite an error message but you i'm not sure if you've heard about this so during the the beginning of the vaccination drive here in germany and other countries some people in in social media like telegram i think particularly they started developing these bots that would go into these websites where they offer appointments for vaccination and the bots will time and again hit the api and try to as soon as there's an opening for for vaccination then it will basically alert the user that they can book it 
And I guess it got to a point where the developers of the sites realized it's like, okay, we're being hammered. Your <laughs> API is just like <laughs> going crazy. <laughs> and then you open the dev console, you would see they were like, okay, dear bot programmer, please respect our API limits <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so yeah, that was just some funny story that I just remembered now. That's great. That's yeah. awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. By the way, you were you were saying that yeah, the, the the messages were stuff that front end developers or users wouldn't understand. Well, if it's been two weeks, the back end developers don't remember what they mean either. <laughs> right. And, and we all know this, right? Because we all write code. It's like it's like, yeah. oh, I've been on to these other three problems for the last two weeks. And what was that again? <laughs> yeah. You go look in the code where it raises it to see, oh, this stuff's around it. That's what it means. Yeah. Hey, we can also send, send a user some, some code and then he can see it. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like that I have I have I haven't sent some um, some keys in the in the object and I got uh, the whole query back <laughs> as, as exception. <laughs> oh, really? Gosh, that sounds funny. The yeah, there was also another one that actually popped up as you were talking, Charles, which is with regards to the possible use cases for you know centralizing your error handling in your application like would you recommend I'm, I'm thinking of someone who's just starting out or building a small application so not that much logic or anything like that like is this would this be necessary would you recommend that they centralize their handling of errors or is it mostly beneficial to large applications yeah, so in my opinion it's uh, yeah better for large applications so where you have multiple components, multiple modules, and yeah, even multiple developers or even multiple teams working working on the same application in the same repository, and they all have to handle some errors. And for example, in my current project, we have, yeah, I think three separate teams working on the same front end. And we are also working from, from Germany and also from Poland on the same application. And somehow you have to make sure that yeah your error handling is consistent and you show the user the consistent messages and then, and not that each component or each module has its own error handling. And I, so I think that it's the best to have it in, in large business applications, yeah, where, where you have multiple developers. So if if you are working on a very small application which has just one module and not not much logic. And maybe just one or two requests to to some backend or so, then it's not necessary because it's some overhead. So I'm going to ask then: At what point do you start looking at putting it in? Because what I found is that the it's just a small application. It only <laughs> does this one thing. It never stays there, right? It, yeah. it doesn't park there and go. Oh yeah, I'm just occupying space here, right? Oh, we need this <laughs> yeah. other thing. Okay, we're going to add this other module in. You go at. Do you, do you start looking at this at two modules, three modules? I mean, two teams, three teams? Where's kind of the sweet spot where, because, and, and I'll just back up a little bit, things like testing or accessibility or some of these other ideas that kind of permeate the entire application. If you go in and try and do them later when the application's big, it's really painful. And so I'm imagining that this is also one of those things that it's much easier to implement early. But yeah, yeah you don't want to come in with a power tool if you can just, tap out your problem in a couple of steps. So yeah, what what's the right answer here? 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know if, if, if there's a hard limit for this. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, kind of depends on, yeah, on, on the application use cases itself. So for what this application is meant for. And I think it's not, not a big deal to have it also for, for smaller applications. If you, if you might think it will be bigger. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. So I'm also, yeah, not that experienced. So I've now three years of experience. So I've, yeah, met some applications yet, but so I yeah, can, I can give you a, a generic answer for this. I think so it's depends on, on the application itself. I think it always yeah, depends. Charles. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I was, a, I was a consultant for six years. It, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one thing I can say that like if you if you don't want to write a lot of catch error in your HTTP call, this is good. Yeah. yeah. I, what so my my rule of on in implementing any kind of broad system like this is that you want to implement it right before you're gonna start feeling the pain for it. And so it sounds like what from what you said, you know, once you have a couple of teams in this and you're getting up to three, maybe four modules, you know, where you can't just keep track of it all in your head. you really ought to start thinking about this, right? And so when you're starting to lose track of how is the error handling happening across these modules and, hey, we've got this other team over here that may be doing something a little bit different, that's when you standardize. And that's where I pick this up. But yeah, it is, it's going to depend because you might have some module that does like two really simple things. And so it almost doesn't count towards your complexity, right? Yeah, Yeah, I also think like that, and it was great when we um, started developing on a micro front-end application with Angular. And we yeah, just, in, so we had two separate Angular applications uh, with their own logic and everything else. So there were two monoliths. And after yeah, half a year, we started to yeah, create some micro front-ends out of them and to have some some shell or some container logic in a, in a shell application. And in this shell application, so which, which um, caused microphones, we had this error handling concept implement and it was great to yeah, just inject some microphones into the application. And even if a microphone throws an error, the global error handling catched this error and, and showed the global error message. And it was, yeah, it was a great experience to see that it was also working for the microphone in Angular. So, so I think one of the use cases is if you want to really make sure that all errors are handled correctly, and then it's yeah you you can use it for every application, unless how many you how many modules you have or how many developers are working on it. So I think it's not not a bad way to to design nearly all of your applications. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's 
using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Uh, I, I so, tend to agree with that. I think, I mean, I've been working on a small project and I, and I say small in inverted commas. The very classic example <laughs> that Chuck just mentioned now, it also started like, yeah, we're going to have a couple of components, a couple of pages, services, and so forth. But over the years, um, it has actually grown a bit. Yeah, so it's, and I'm thinking now, and looking back, I'm like, actually, I, I could have actually made use of it back then uh, when I started developing it. But the the nice thing is that, you know, with Angular, because we it's not that hard to to implement it even after the fact yep. as long as obviously you're following the the correct patterns and and the best practices and implementing the global error handler class or interface in this case th that it will guide you into doing it in in the correct manner and yeah, maybe it's also the wrong question to ask when to use it so maybe you should ask so when not to use it <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I think I think uh, you should not use it if your application requires some really individual error handling. So if the customer asks you to have some individual error handling, so if the error messages or error dialogues should be completely different in the, in the modules or your components, then it's maybe not the best use case for that. Because you yeah, you, you sell um, a little bit flexibility for this. And yeah, so you lose the flexibility and It doesn't matter if, if the if the error handling should be consistent in your whole application, but there might be probably use cases that yeah, are different like this. If you are getting always a different error, then I think we can use the recharge transpiler <laughs> and, and can display display messages. Yeah. <laughs> But at least on a side, like uh, I wonder, like this all have. Uh, we are able to do because Angular implemented all these uh, patterns what we are having like you can use uh, like uh, provide like HTTP interceptor and they can use it in another class to do, do this uh, all object oriented concepts makes it happen it's uh, somehow like if someone is just starting out it may look uh, pretty easy okay I'm just using using it class but uh, how it helps later and how it uh, helps you know, maintaining the application For a big application, obviously, if you are following all the patterns and everything, the uh, solid principle, I think very few people may have used, uh, everybody should use solid uh, in the front end as well, but at least haven't seen it uh, in a big topic in the application, uh, in the big framework or big application point of view. But these kind of patterns or the best practices will going to help us uh, later. Yeah. Or at least it will reduce our code, how much we'll type in the, for error handling or for 
token injection support? I guess one of the key questions, very, very important question is, and for those that do not know, Philip is uh, is very prominent in the open source world. Um, and it is this, we were talking before we started the recording um, about this one um, VS Code extension called Material Icon. Um, it's, and I checked out the, the code, the the repository, and the question is, do you use <laughs> error handling or do you say you centralize your error handling for, for that uh, project? You mean for the material icon theme? Yes. Yeah, so the material icon theme is a completely different uh, use case, I think. It's yeah, really stick to the extension API of Visual Studio Code. So Visual Studio Code provides a specific API with some interfaces which you can use to yeah to, to customize the features of Visual Studio Code, mm-hmm. and in my case, these are yeah to inject some some icons into the into VS Code to, to show them probably, and uh, yeah. So the error handling basically looks like, yeah is 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 a try catch chain. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a top level try catch that catches globally the error mm-hmm. messages. From from the uh, lower parts of the application, so it's um, yeah, it's a little bit diff- different to to this concept which was described in my article here. But yeah, somehow there's also a global error handling in this extension too. Yeah, we should just use global try catches for everything. I, I like that <laughs> <laughs> try catch yeah. around the whole app. Yeah, uh, some broke, man. Yeah, so oh, oh go ahead. I mean the the code for the material icon theme is kind of only supportive, so. Just to support some some features like uh, to to adjust the um, opacity or saturation of some icons, it's it's not not the main part of this extension. You know, it's just to to support some some additional features and some or or most of people might say they are not even necessary these features. So it's uh, most mostly about the icons and that the icons are shiny and look good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can definitely attest to that because yeah, as of this morning, I'm a proud user of the material icon theme. Thank you very Ooh. much. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, if, if you went over Richard, I mean, that's Nirvana right there. Yeah, you could um, also I, try to try to produce some errors in this extension, and then, yes. <laughs> then you can see <laughs> the error handling. I will yeah. try to break it. <laughs> yeah, try challenge then, accepted. <laughs> yeah, but there's also then the error handling of Visual Studio Code, yeah, which will uh, show you some error messages and which will catch my my extension errors. Yeah, yeah. I guess I mean you are working within this bubble, this ecosystem that Visual Visual Studio Code provides for you, um, the APIs. So yeah, I guess there is some sort of mechanism that basically builds on top of that. But yeah, for the sake of the for the topic that we're talking about in the Angular framework, it's a slightly different uh, concept. Yeah, I did have another question, and this is kind of tangentially related, but it's more like team practice. So one thing that I've run into with the app that I work on in the full-time job is that we don't always communicate well, hey, we have this thing, you should use it, right? And so what'll happen is, is because there are two teams that work on our app. And so the other team will go in and they'll actually, oh, we need to surface. And you know, when an error comes up, we need to surface the error. And so then what happens is, if we've already built that, then they wind up kind of reinventing the the wheel, and now we have two systems, right? And and so you know, after they've spent three days engineering it, right, 
and we get the code review for it, we're going, uh, guys, this was already in there, right? So I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, how do you communicate within the organization to make sure that everybody knows that, hey, we've got a framework for this? That's a good question. So in my opinion, a good organization or good communication is yeah, similarly important as a good code structure, good architecture, so, because it makes the project successful and it's, yeah, makes it successfully also for the customer too. And so I can also only speak for, for my company or, or the projects that, that we are working on. And it's, yeah, it's about communication, um, making, yeah, knowledge transfer sessions where we look into our code. We are doing pair programming most of the time. And so, yeah, and we have to spread the knowledge to our colleagues and but i i think it's also it's nowhere it's, it's perfect so it can happen yeah that that some also some some new colleagues might come into the project and yeah do not know everything so no one expects that uh, yeah someone is knowing everything so it can happen yeah that that they are reinventing the wheel but so and documentation also can help you yeah. yeah i think document good doc- documentation can help we are also writing design documents for for each feature, so where we uh, specify um, how our features and, and modules are structured and architected, and so it's it's a good base to yeah get the knowledge to everyone. And I think that to get yeah I, th- I think I think the the error handling which is described in my article same as how you could show loading spinners yeah. Reduces a little bit the complexity uh, and, and makes it easier for, for new developers. So if, if they know, okay, every request to my backend shows a loading spinner, I do not have to, to think about it and I do not have to unit test mm-hmm. it or care about it. It's just there and it's handled somewhere globally. And uh, your more complexity, you can yeah, move away from feature components or feature modules, the better it is to yeah, make, make it easy for new developers or your team to not reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned documentation, which I didn't want anyone to say because the company I work for uses Confluence with Geek. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It makes sense, right? You put that information in a central place. And then the other problem that you have to solve is making sure that everybody checks there before they go and reinvent the wheel. Because I I know that my team rarely looks at it. And I know that the other team never looks at it. So... That's yeah. the other piece of it, right? So you have to develop that practice of, hey, yeah. here's here's where the info is, and I think I think one of the best ways for that is is, is pair programming. So for me, so I think mm. if, if two guys um, are working on on a feature or implementing something, and there's yeah one who is not so experienced and the other one who is more experienced, and they can can share the knowledge um, the best and. Yeah, and everyone can enhance uh, the other colleagues, and I think if, I think it's great if, if you are working together and not not everyone separated. So I think it also works works for my company or for my project. We are we are also working from home, so everyone is separated. We're working from different locations, but we're trying to to make calls frequently to sync us and to share our ideas and our knowledge and share our issues where we, where we are working on. And so we are, yeah, try our best to avoid these issues. So that's, 
that someone gets mm-hmm. lost and, and doesn't know how things work. Yeah, that's true. Like almost like each and every time we I've sat down and worked with someone, so pair programming with someone, um, whether a feature or debugging session, you know, if you were to contrast that to doing it on your own, uh, in my own experience, it has always been the, the solution that we that we come up with uh, while pro pair programming is far much more solid, more structured, more well thought out than had you approached it by yourself. Mm. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see here you have another extension called Angular Component Extractor. And yeah, I got the, to the clip, it looks pretty cool. Okay, can you please explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think it was some months ago when I scrolled through my Twitter feed and then I saw a feature from uh, WebStorm and they showed that they, yeah, they showed in a GIF animation that they just selected some HTML template code with their mouse. And yeah, I think it was a right click and said, okay, refactor it to a, another Angular component. And it automatically happened after that. And I was excited and I thought, okay, why isn't this available for Visual Studio Code? And would, would be a great feature yeah, to just, if, if you want to refactor a large uh, Angular component, which, which um, was got too big, and you want to separate it in, in, it into multiple uh, new components of most likely dumb components, then it would be great yeah, to just select uh, the code and press one or two buttons, and then it will be uh, extracted in a separated component automatically. And this was the, yeah, the idea when I, yeah, asked a colleague and a friend of mine, so Nico Vogel, and we implemented this with Studio Code extension together. And so it also makes it possible in, in VS Code to, yeah, select some template code. And after that runs automatically your Angular CLI to to generate a component and yeah right now it's it's really yeah it's it's uh, still in a preview stage so we are yeah had some brainstorming about what kind of features we could support so you usually do not have some html text that should be extracted into another component but also input or output events um, you have some type information that you want to extract you have some maybe TypeScript code that should be extracted too, and, and so on. So we have yeah lots of still lots of yeah, ideas, and yeah we are we would be happy for for feedback and if people will will try it out and and say it's nice and want to yeah give us the feedback that we should focus on on yeah specific features or where we should um yeah go further. And yeah, yeah. So, so basically, what I'm hearing is you want to learn how to do magic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I believe in miracles. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, we, we uh, also, it is a pretty cool extension. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we also experienced while we are we were thinking about it. So some yeah features would be kind of magic. So to extract lots of code and yeah, you know, lo- the code is somehow really yeah nested and connected to, to parts of your application and yeah, to just separate it into a separate component is uh, is, is a tricky 
nothing. Yeah, and I can already imagine a, a use case or where it, this could come in pretty handy. <laughs> so you remember all that spaghetti code that you wrote, Charles, so many years ago? <laughs> I'm a unicorn. I've never done that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can just dive into some of your old project projects and yeah, you can just like highlight a couple of uh, lines and have Philips Magic extract all that code into some nice little components. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> Oh, that's at least yeah, I'll, I'll do that on my coworker's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. So, I mean, so, so, did, so right yeah. now, it's working for, for basic components. It's working for components to have some, yeah, some, some variables and we can generate an input. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's working right now. You, you can add an input element. So the input is automatically added to the, to the child component, which is then generated. And the parent component, yeah, so where you selected your code is using this input to inject the, the variable into the child component. That's pretty cool. So the new component will be created in the same same directory or it will create yes. a folder and it's generated in the same directory, but it has I think it I think it has it, it has its own directory name. So it's it's the same command which would be executed or which is executed by the angular cli so if you would run in the current directory your angular cli to generate a new component okay that's the same what what happens under the hood okay are you using schematics uh, under the hood um, for, for generating the files yeah so we, we are using angular cli to generate the files yeah, right so it's ju just um yeah like uh, running a node node command to call the angular cli on on your terminal and then it, it um, yeah, injects the required parameters to this CLI command, and then it generates yeah, the component with the CLI. So the extension expects that the Angular CLI is installed in your project, or otherwise it fallbacks to the NPX and, and runs the CLI from via NPX. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Yeah. Pretty cool. I will definitely suss it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can try out on... We are happy for feedback and yeah, you can also always create issues and yeah, you can also take a look into our code. You find find bugs or spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's only Charles, it's okay. That's okay. right. I always create issues. I mean, um <clears throat> I, I will let you know if there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think it's also always great if people are contributing to open source repositories. I, I can see that pretty much for my icon extension. So it's yeah, kind of popular and lots of people are having great ideas and great suggestions for new icons. You cannot even imagine what, what kind of programming languages uh, require an, an icon for, for this extension. And it's, it's great. Yeah. So I, get, I got to know so many programming lang languages uh, through this icon extension. I haven't even heard uh, before about these languages. <laughs> so there's there's a programming language which is called Coconut. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> it, it's great. So I love it. And, and people are yeah. contributing to it and, and having these ideas and say, hey, you need that. And sometimes also people uh, people are creating requests with, with cool icons, and mm. not even icons, sometimes also code and language translations. And this project is all, uh, yeah, got only so popular because of lots of contributions and lots of ideas from, from the people. 
Mm. And Philip is actually being very modest when he says popular. Uh, he's he means eight point seven two nine nine five six million <laughs> downloads on on VS Code. So it is huge. It is a huge success, and and I love it. I, I tried it this morning, and I think it's pretty cool. It seems very basic and simple, but it works and it's pretty. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to push us uh, more toward picks here just because I have a call coming up. But before we do that, Philip, if people want to follow you on Twitter and GitHub are usually the ones that people push to. LinkedIn seems to be yeah. picking up steam. But yeah, if, if people want to find you on any of those, where do they find you? Yeah, so for me, it's Twitter and GitHub. So mm-hmm. yeah, you can. So on Twitter, you, you can follow me. I, I regularly post some, some newer new projects or updates on my projects and retweet some some cool other ideas from other guys from Twitter. So it's it's, yeah, it's a great place to follow my interests regarding programming. And you can also yeah follow me on, on GitHub, which is not a social network. But uh, yeah, you can you can follow me and check uh, on which project I'm currently working. And by the way, that, that's a cool uh, side story. So during my, my studies, uh, some friends wanted to contact me via whatsapp and it didn't reach me because my 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 smartphone was was somewhere on the table on on mute and then they wrote a commit on github where they they wrote hey philip uh, can you please uh, please answer us on whatsapp and then actually (laughs) i read this message on on this commit message earlier than on my whatsapp so (laughs) it was kind of yeah wow that is so cool (laughs) yeah that's that's awesome so if yeah, you want to really contact me, just just yeah. open a pull request and and send write some commit messages, and then then I have your attention. Hey Philip, pick up your damn phone. <laughs> Push. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's pretty cool. But that's what yeah. that was a secret tip. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the damn phone is what what you have after you've had your smartphone for a while. You get yeah. tired of it. Absolutely. The damn phone. Awesome. Let's go ahead and do some picks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a master class. It's going to be a four-week master class where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Richard, do you have some picks for us? Actually, I had forgotten about this section of uh, <laughs> segment of the podcast, to be honest. Let me think. You know what? What is still very fresh and uh, brings a big smile on my face right now is the material icon uh, by Philip Keith. You might have heard of this guy. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to pick that um, as one of, um, yeah, one of the picks that are something that is still percolating in my mind right now. So I'll definitely pick that. Awesome. Subrat, what are your picks? So pick for this week will be a book again. So it's a Start With Why. Ooh, so it will Simon inspire Sinek. everyone. Yeah, Simon Sinek. So have a, have a read. A, it will give some some meaning at least. Yep. Terrific book. Especially if you're in, in, in any kind of leadership, you're trying to yep. uh, influence your organization, things like that, right? 
So if you're trying to influence them to write an error handler in your app, <laughs> anyway, it's it's a terrific book. I I like his stuff. Anything else? I kind of cut you off there. Yeah, no, no. I think this is done for this. Okay. This so I'm going to throw out a few picks. I just want to remind everybody, go to devchat.tv slash level up. If you want to be on one of the Q&A calls, it's 10 minutes of training. And then we just answer questions. So we run out of time. The other one that I'm going to throw out there, I mentioned at the start of the show is Podcast Bootcamp. It's four weeks. We'll get your podcast launched, make you sound terrific. And yeah, all the details are at podcastbootcamp.io. And then a few things that are not my stuff that I'm going to throw out. Our first, my wife and I started watching this show and it's it's free on the online. So you can just, just go look it up and you can find it. It's called The Chosen. And it is basically a, it's kind of a depiction of the life of Jesus Christ. But it's, so most of those, they just kind of show the the Bible stories, right? It's just like this and then this and this. But what these folks have done is they've kind of created this ongoing narrative. And so they created backstories for some of the, the apostles and some of the other people that you read about in the Bible, some of the people for whom Jesus performed miracles. And then you kind of get this more fleshed out story. And and so it's it's really been interesting. So obviously some of it is fictional, right? But anyway, it's been a really, really enjoyable way to kind of connect with the things that we believe here. So I'm going to pick that because it's just been terrific. And then completely unrelated, we signed up for a service at the same time that we signed that we started watching this. And the service that we signed up for actually owns the production company that made The Chosen. And we found that out later. But the service is called VidAngel. And effectively, what they do is you can watch shows on Netflix, Amazon Prime, a couple of the other streaming services. I think Hulu is is on there. And what, what it does is you can tell it to filter out certain content, right? So if you want to watch a show with your kids and you don't want them to see certain kinds of content, you can tell it no sex or no none of these words or things like that right and and it has filters for that now somebody has to go through and actually say the filters apply to these time codes right so it doesn't have everything on all those platforms but it has most of the popular stuff and it's been pretty nice because there have been some shows that i want to watch that i know have parts that i don't want to watch like me personally as as an adult right and so i just say hey you know what I don't, I don't need to see nudity. I don't need to hear the F-bomb, right? And it just cleans it up. And it's been really, really nice. So I'm going to pick that as well. Philip, what are your picks? I think my pick is actually GitHub Codespaces. So I think it was yeah, published uh, the last week or in, within the last two weeks. And GitHub Codespaces is VS Code for web with which you can open yeah, GitHub repositories Simple by, simply by pressing the dot button of your keyboard, and then you can start yeah, editing code of, of some repositories and yeah, navigating through repositories on GitHub with the VS Code web edition. And I think it's, it's really great. Unfortunately, the icon theme is not capable <laughs> right now of this, but there will be an update, I think, maybe this evening or yeah, lately, yeah, tomorrow. So yeah, so I will, will start to publish a new version on it so that it's also available for the GitHub code spaces. And I think, yeah, it's one of, one of the greatest things uh, that's occurred within the last one or two weeks for me. Oh, yes. I need to chime in there because I actually retweeted that tweet from your feed, <laughs> Philip, and I tried it out. 
It is so cool. If you thought that was uh, what he mentioned earlier on was magic, this is like mind blowing. It's it's yeah. just insane. Very very cool feature from from GitHub. I think it's I think it's pretty. It's gonna take off. It's gonna pick up pretty well. I think. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So it'd be great. nice to see material icon theme there as well. <laughs> so no I'll pressure. get an hour out. <laughs> yeah. It will come. Yeah. After listening, this they will add. Awesome. I just found out too that, and I'd heard rumors of this, but The Chosen is actually filmed about 45 minutes from here in Utah. I don't know why they, well, I do know why they picked that location. And it's kind of an interesting story. I'm just going to throw it in real quick because it's fun. But so the the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS Church, Mormons, big presence here. I'm a member of the church. But they did a bunch of Bible videos a few years ago, and they basically built a whole bunch of like, replica sets of Jerusalem scenes and stuff. And they allow other organizations to come in and film the same kind of content, right? If you need kind of that ancient looking, you know, old time Jerusalem kind of look to your film, you can come film there. So anyway, apparently they let them come film the chosen there as well. Interesting. Yeah. Love this stuff. Ooh. It's, it's fun. It's always fun to find it. Uh, like, a semi-personal connection to some of the stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Anyway. Well, thanks for coming, Philip. This was a lot of fun and hopefully we inspired some folks to, yeah, kind of consolidate and simplify some of this stuff because, yeah, if you're doing it piecemeal, it's kind of a pain in the neck. But <laughs> if you can get it all together in one place, then it's, oh, I'm just going to lock into these components and these services and I'm done. So. Yeah, absolutely. So also thanks for having me and yeah, you had some great questions and it was great to be part of your podcast. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up here. Until next time, Max out. Bye-bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.